and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. These are strange and difficult times for all people, all industries across the world and opera is no exception. A warning that this is going to be a coronavirus heavy episode, but we'll try and sprinkle some operatic joy among the COVID-19 weeds. Joining me this month are two OperaCast newcomers who I'm delighted to welcome by the medium of Skype. Nicola Candlish, Chief Executive British Youth Opera, good morning. Good morning. Where are you talking to us from today? Um, I'm in my flat in East London. And when was the last time you left the house? Um, yesterday, because I've got a dog, so I have to walk her. An excellent excuse. <laughs> and uh, joining us uh, also on the line is the director, Laura Attridge. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. And before we started recording, you painted a lovely picture of, of where you're um, isolated to at the moment. Yes, I am very, very lucky enough to um, have escaped to my uh, future in-laws house in the middle of Devon. Um, we were, my partner and I were trying to get as far away from the city as possible. Um, and as I, I literally the day before sat and sat at my desk and cried as I rubbed out everything from my diary. Um, we had sort of nothing to stay for um, aside from our rent, so we scarpered um a couple of evenings ago and i'm very lucky to be looking out at their beautiful garden and, and um looking after my mental health in the countryside <laughs> yes an excellent plan in last month's pod we didn't even mention it and now we're faced with the cancellation of all opera performances across almost all of the world for the foreseeable future as opera does its part to stem the tide of the coronavirus Aside from the enormous economic impact this is bringing on opera companies, it's exposed the conditions and precarious nature of employment for tens of thousands of freelance singers, administrators, technicians and theatre staff around the world. As well as the spring seasons of the year-round companies having to cancel, most summer festivals have now cancelled their 2020 seasons, including Opera Holland Park, Grange Opera and Grange Park. At the time of recording, Longborough, opening 4th of June, and Garsington, opening 28th of May, are still going ahead, but we expect to hear from them both soon. And Glyndebourne have suspended the first two months of their season, now due to open on the 14th of July. Before we discuss the impact on the sector in detail, Nicola and Laura, could you just tell us about the impact that this has had on you both professionally so far? Um, Nicola, if you want to go first. Sure. Um, I think BYO are oddly well-placed at the minute because our season doesn't actually start until September. So it's still nearly six months away. Of course, we don't know how long this is going to last and we don't know what we're going to be facing when we get there. We know we've got to make decisions in the middle of the summer about when to get a set built, when to start rehearsals. and We have a broad outline of how that might pan out, but if we're going to the Hackney Empire this year and if the Hackney Empire has to close down and then can't reopen for any reason, we don't have a venue. I mean, I'm sure we'll find another one, but these are all plans that were firmly lodged in place and now they're gone. Um, we cancelled and postponed all of our Easter workshops and activity, which is not something that most people know about BYO, that we do singers' workshops over the Easter holidays. They've all been postponed. We really hope to do them in later in the year at some point they're quite easy to reschedule in that it's we just need a room and some people so you know that's easy enough um but we felt it was irresponsible to bring people together and we actually cancelled them a couple of weeks ago um but i'm glad we did now because we couldn't have had them anyway <laughs> it's really complicated because 
we are in the business of setting people up for a career in opera and we don't now know what career there's going to be for them so i'm guessing we'll talk about this a bit more later on but where we currently are is we very much hope that there's going to be an industry left for us to perform to in September and if we're really lucky we'll be welcoming everyone back to the theatre. And as you said it's um, it's not just the date of a performance but it's the rehearsals beforehand it's as you said mm-hmm. someone, someone's got to build a set Um, when do yeah. they start doing doing that so there's yeah. this huge kind of you know lead-in period that kind of happens on whatever scale of, yeah, of kind of performance that you know kind of gets gets knocked on impacted. Yeah, it's perhaps not visible to those who buy tickets or aren't involved in the backstage production processes. We're in design meetings this week and last week about what our show, the concept might be for design. And that is very late compared to most companies. Like uh, the summer festivals would have done that a year, two years ago. And those sets are sitting in warehouses ready to go on stage. Um, So they've already shelled out the money to have that set. And it's just sat there. So I'd be interested to see whether the summer festivals just take 2020 and put that all in 21. Because I think they'll be so far down the line in production terms that that might need to be the case. Yeah, I think think there'll potentially be a few things. One is that everything just gets pushed back a year and 2020 becomes 21 and 21 becomes 22. Obviously, they've they've got artists, they've already scheduled for those seasons, so how this will work, we we, we don't know. Um, And I'm I'm sure there'll be some you know, impresarios out there. Later on in the pod, we're going to hear from Waspi Kani. Um, I'm sure she's the type of person that's already cooking up schemes for how these operas are going to see the light the light of day whenever and wherever that yeah. might be. Um, and, and Laura, what, what about yourself? Kind of what, how has this impacted you kind of so far? As, as an artist, it's uh, been incredibly emotional. Um, having within a single day actually received all of the cancellations from my own diary, um, and to get email after email um, as I sat at my desk was was really overwhelming, and, and I don't think I've quite processed it yet. Um, and of course, my my production of Cosi Van Tutte for English touring opera, um, as of yesterday's announcement by the company, um, has been cancelled along with the rest of its tour. Fifty two performances uh, of of their productions were left to be done between now and May, um, and. I haven't quite processed the, the emotional impact of that on me as a director with what was um, certainly the biggest project I tackled uh, uh, to this point um, as a young director um, and had been looking forward to that show, seeing audiences and introducing myself as a director to, to people all around the country. Um, I am so enormously grateful um, that we got even four performances because I know so many shows have had to open after one performance after no performances um, in the middle of their rehearsal period. So I know that my my team and I uh, and everyone at ETO are so lucky to have opened the season at least and had our London performances and our Snake performances. Um, but to th- I I was sort of living on the joy of this production, which was already really made. Um, I made a lot of decisions for Cozy, which were about taking a show uh, to audiences who are already living in bleak and troubling times um, socially and politically. Um, And there was a wonderful uh, review that came out yesterday by Alexandra Coughlin in The Spectator, which which mentioned that this would have been a great show to go around the country and (laughs) bring joy to audiences because it really is a show full of joy and colour and humanity and... um, all of that wonderful stuff that, that Mozart has to offer uh, and what a shame 
because that's exactly what we intended it to be. Um, what a shame that that doesn't get to happen. So. Um, well, as as you said, if we can take any sort of little spark of sunshine, it's that I suppose Cosy got to got to open at least and kind of share some of that that joy with with audiences. And as you say, I mean, very sad it's it's um, it's kind of been put us put a stop to. But congratulations on the the reviews that did emerge from those first few performances. Um, I'm so sorry, I didn't see it. I was going to go and see it in Durham. I know. I was waiting for York <laughs> in a couple of weeks' time, but never mind. Never mind. Let's put that out of our minds. Um, <laughs> So Nicola, one thing I understand that you are doing with with, with BYO, looking towards your your kind of summer performances, is is holding auditions online. Um, yes. How is that going to work? <laughs> is that <laughs> is that another question? <laughs> we haven't actually tried it yet. Um, though one of the great things about BYO in the last six months is we've gone completely cloud based and digital. So uh, we we do everything through the cloud now. We don't have you know solid anything everything's virtual which is good so we kind of already have the the technology to do this but it's I mean I was talking to our musical director and he said I'm not really sure I want all these people coming touching my piano and then breathing I was like yes good point (laughs) so we made that decision a couple of weeks ago um so what we're doing is we're asking young conductors and reps which is what we're auditioning for at the moment singer auditions have finished um to send in videos because everyone has a video now of their work so that's a good place to start we'd prefer to see them face to face um because we you know it's it is better but a video will do and at least everyone's on the same page then it's completely fair and it's just irresponsible for anyone to travel um we're also going to ask them to be by a keyboard be that an electric piano or a real piano if they can and we'll do a few little bits of sight reading and um not like an oral test for your grade five, kind of, but like <laughs> <laughs> the best we can, you know. Um, and hopefully, providing everyone can get a decent internet connection, that will be that will be just as fair and just as good a way of finding out the be- best next generation of conductors and reps. Yeah, decent internet connection is the big thing. Again, something we're all learning yeah. working from home now. That yeah, some some of those um, conductors in in rural Devon or whatnot, or you know Norfolk might have a bit more of yeah. an issue, but you know we'll. Let's keep let's keep the fingers crossed for for all of them. Um, yeah. Let, let's start then by looking at the impact on companies. I know that a lot of opera companies are putting material online for for free to kind of keep keep momentum going, keep audiences engaged. Um, Laura, I I must be honest, I'm a little bit concerned that this is actually potentially a bit of a a dangerous move for companies. I've always been concerned that giving stuff for free perpetuates this idea that kind of opera and and the arts in general is something that we audiences kind of shouldn't have to pay for which um, in the long term is not going to keep us all all going <laughs> well i mean what would you kind of think to you know the, the mets the the Bayer stats up all these people kind of putting stuff online for for free during this period it's such a tricky one um we're in a time where every single decision it feels like i'm making that or i'm thinking about making human beings are making around the world everything seems to be morally judged or judgeable so um I'm there going, yes, but I want to go and help. But then if I go and help, I'm moving in between this household now and the outer world. Uh, I want to do everything I can. But then if I'm offering some services for free, for example, things that I'm able to offer um, with my expertise, if I go online and I say, I'm going to offer these for free, I'm undercutting those who make their living through doing that thing for money, quite quite rightly. Um, and we've, but seen, anyway, we've so... seen some singers offering lessons online for free as well, haven't we? And, and again, a lot of people that do that anyway sort of 
arguing that again that's kind of taking away absolutely so i think from the smallest action of you know wanting to reach out and help and make things better which is of course wonderful um is there alongside the implications that it has on um on people's income and on the future of, of the art form from those big gestures of the Met saying, great, we're going to put lots of things online down to, am I going to leave the house today to go and donate something to a food bank and thereby meet lots of people and get in con- potentially get in contact with lots of people. And I think we're, it's sort of between a rock and a hard place of people wanting to reach out metaphorically, not literally um, <laughs> to reach out and, and help one another and to connect with one another. And of course, art and opera in particular is really all about that connection between the stage or the performer and the music and the audience uh, and those listening or watching. Um, and it's, I don't think there's an answer. Um, I do think there are complications uh, and I don't know the legal ins and outs and the financial ins and outs of each company who's offering free things online or online resources. But my belief is that the artists, of course, involved in in, in those productions that have been taped um, uh, and are being provided should be compensated accordingly um, if they and, and and one hopes that particularly with the, with the bigger companies, indeed with all companies, that has been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you hope that they honour those artists and and think through what they're going to do with um, any revenue that, that that they take in in other places to make sure that yeah the artists are compensated. They're not just offering other people's work for free. Yeah, I I mean a, a lot of all, um, some companies are, are able to pay. Kind of freelance staff for the performances that are cancelled. Um, I know that uh, English National Opera, Opera North, English Touring Opera are all honouring those contracts. Um, but there are other companies that that are not, or, or kind of simply cannot. You know, without the box office revenue, they they can't honour those those contracts. Um, and I suppose Nicola, that's something that people might not have realised that for most opera singers, you're paid when you step on a stage. Weeks and weeks exactly. of rehearsal. Um, if you don't step on that stage, there's there's no guarantee you're going to get paid. Mm-hmm. Um. This is something that if a good thing comes out of the coronavirus crisis, it will be a complete overhaul of contracting in the industry. I've said it for years. The industry is shocking to its staff. The zero hours contracts, you you hear in the press a lot about, you know, people who work in supermarkets, zero hour contract. You don't really hear about the theatre technician Hmm. on a zero hour contract. Skilled, very skilled job, highly skilled, years of training, and you can be dropped at a moment's notice. See, I found it shocking, and I haven't ever devoted as much time to thinking about this, that singers get paid on opening night and per show. That means that when they're sick, they sing through an illness because they want the payment for that show. That can't be right, like, for anybody. And I, I know a lot of singers, and they're all saying we've had absolutely nothing. Why do we, this is very metaphorical, why do we contract <laughs> creatives on a third on contract, a third on rehearsals and a third on opening night why don't we contract singers like that because we probably know who the singer is before we know who the director is i mean in some cases you can there's no reason why we can't do that but i'm guessing it's all cash flow and until you announce danielle denise is in your opera people aren't going to get excited about it and then they're not going to buy any tickets till they're excited about it the ticket income you know Hmm. perpetuates this i don't have the answer but i really hope that when this is all over, the industry has a good look at this. Yeah, I, I, I think without wanting to make, again, extrapolate in, into wider society, that there's something about those singers that get paid a, a heck of a lot of money 
Um, and, and sometimes they will they will cancel performances. There are some singers we know out there that frequently will cancel will cancel performances yeah. um, and therefore therefore won't get paid. And you can kind of see some of the logic behind that. But singers, as you say, kind of low down the scale that if they don't go on stage, they don't get paid. If they're ill, they, they still perform because kind of they have to. Maybe actually what we're looking at is a different way of contracting singers depending on Ooh, I don't know how you do this, but on 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 fee or role level or or whatever it kind of might be to ensure that there yeah. is something that is a little fairer across the whole spectrum, um, because yeah, those singers that are cancelling because they they don't feel like it or they get a, a a different offer or you know whatnot, um, you know they can afford to do that, um, but other singers in that same production can't necessarily. So, as you say, I think we need to look for where whether we call them positives or not, learnings may come <laughs> may come from yeah. this that we we kind of take take forward. And I think a lot of people have said for a very long time that we can't change it because that's the way it's always been. And people say we can't change it because it will require the whole sector to do it or it won't work. Never before have we had an opportunity to press hard reset on the opera industry like we have now. And we we should be thinking ahead when we can to how we can do that. Yeah. I mean, of those companies that are, uh, are able or have uh, agreed to kind of honour singers' contracts, um, pretty much all of them are the, the big publicly funded organisations. We, we've often said that um, it often seems a negative to rely so much on public subsidy, but maybe this is one of those instances where the, the UK's kind of reliance on the Arts Council and whatnot is, a, is actually turning out to be quite a, a good thing in, in these kind of times of times of stress. And we've seen companies like the Met in, in New York um, that are looking at huge trouble because they're so reliant, actually, on... Um, Have you heard what they've done? Uh, they've, they've laid people off, haven't they? Yeah, they've laid off their orchestra and chorus at the Met. I think this is why I perhaps mentioned them in, in reference to the free material be, being made available online. Um, yeah. That, for me, is a huge a huge chasm between the gesture of offering free material and then laying off your staff. I just think if you're going to use money and resources to, to, to make something happen, make that paying your artists. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. I think as well with people putting stuff for free online, they aren't saying, this is opera, have you ever tried it? You're bored at mm. home, try it now. And then later on, when those people go back to work and have a bit of money, they can go, oh, I tried opera when I was at home. That was nice. Let's go and see one. They just seem to be marketing to the people who already follow them on Facebook and all the, you know, associated media. Hmm. Yeah, it's more of a, um, more of a, are you missing our performances? Watch this one. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you spin it differently, you never know what the good might come out of it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, something I, I've wondered as well is this kind of German model where most singers are sort of contracted to a, to a house. Um, so you have kind of those house singers that do roles. And it was a model that we used to have a bit more here in the UK. But now um, we have opera choruses and then all of pretty much all of the soloists are kind of contracted for shows. Um, again, do you think this might be an instance where we think slightly differently as to how singers in general actually are? work with houses and are contracted less reliant on freelance and actually more reliant on a pool of singers who are supported if something like this touch wood um it won't but if something like this um happens uh, again are there actually bigger things that we might even see in the industry because of this or is it just too early to tell well too early i think um yeah but i, I think no no go on <laughs> So oh English right now. Yeah. Um, we're, we're all learning how to do this by Skype. It's a new world. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would just say um, I think that 
it's a it's a fascinating time for um things to be revealed um issues in the in infrastructure both in uh freelancers and, and gig workers and zero hour contract workers um in it, across the country and the, the flaws in the system for su- the support net network net where am i going for? what metaphor am i going for i don't know um flaws in that system and that infrastructure uh in in the bigger picture and then also how, what responsibility we can take to expose and to fix the flaws in within the infrastructure of opera itself so there's 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 two systems both very very complex to be looked at um and i suppose there are some that we as uh, i suppose i have less power than those running organizations but we in the industry have the power to to change or to fix or to remedy and those that we have less power um on a governmental kind of scale i was going to say that um it would be a good time to look at training in the industry and how many people are training especially to be singers uh you cannot deny that there are far more singers out there than work for them and that has been the case for years it's it is going to be a problem because the fringe edges of the work that kept people going is probably going to drop off even if it doesn't drop off forever it's not going to be as robust as it was so i do wonder whether we need to look at the routes into opera and the amount of training places that are versus the amount of work that there actually is in the industry and nicola i understand you you used to be a stage manager in a, in a former life I did. Can, can you can you sell us the 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 delights and joys of being a stage manager for any singers out there who uh, are going to heed your advice? What what's uh, <laughs> what's what's so wonderful about the world of the stage manager? Now, now, are you implying that stage management is a career for a failed singer? I'm implying that if if there are roles in stage management, that people might want to be enlightened as to why this would be an exciting avenue to explore. Um. Oh, that's a really good one. You've got me. <laughs> Um, stage management is is the career for that person who is super organised, is thinking everything through and thinking through all the problems before they get to them and is happy to stand up in, in the room of people and say, right, come on now, we're doing this. So if you're the person, when you go to the pub, who all your friends look around the pub and go, oh, there's nowhere to sit. And you go, well, there's some chairs over there, there's some chairs over there and there's a table in that corner. Right, we'll work this out. That's stage management mentality. And um, it's, I mean, I, was a, I did a music degree and a PhD in music and never at any point did I think my career was going to be in performing music. Uh, it's, I love working in music. So as a stage manager, you're in amongst it and you're reacting musically to it because you have to do your cues on time and you have to tell everyone else what to do on time. Um, it's great fun. It's so thrilling. Um, yeah. That's stage management's fab. And also, a lot of people think, oh, I can't do that forever. Well, you don't have to. I didn't. I did 10 years. And I did some great things. And here I am now. So definitely worth pursuing a career in stage management. Excellent. Good a good answer. And, and I think British Youth Opera, you have roles for stage managers, repetitors, all sorts of things. We, we do everything at BYO. Um, that's something that we've done for 30 two years now is we train everything everybody and everything i don't think we've been very good at telling everyone that because i certainly didn't know that um and i perhaps would have done byo as a stage manager had, had i known it existed um but we've we've started two new training programs in the last year so last year we added hair and makeup technicians to our list and we took seven trainees in hair and makeup last year 
supported by a professional, which was amazing. And this year we are adding props makers and supervisors and photographers. And the photographers program is going to be working with the fabulous Bob Workman. So I think we really are aiming to have absolutely everything. We've already started taking on a trainee producer as well. Um, and the one we had last year was so good. We've took her on and we, she works for us now. Um, and we've had many, many trainee assistant directors, of which Laura was one. <laughs> yes. When, when were you with BYO, Laura? So I, uh, I joined the Little Green Swallow in 2014, straight out of college. Um, when I had decided not to go back to college, uh, <laughs> I walked. I had I had called them up, and a week later to say I'm not coming back to do the masters. Thank you very much. I had a lovely okay. time. And um, I walked into uh, the rehearsal room a week later and at the meet and greet, I will never, never forget this. I did went around the room, I'm Laura, I'm the assistant director, and suddenly felt like myself having spent a few years saying I'm a singer. Um, and honestly, I, I could not be where I am nearly six years later with without that amazing, amazing first step into directing. Well, you, you, you can clip that for your own uh, social media purposes, but that's enough of a plug for BYO for now. Um, so let, 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 let's move on to, you know, you, we've mentioned before some of the things that might change because of this. Let's look to kind of some of the some of the potential positives of, of where this is this has gone. We mentioned that, you know, some a lot of organisations putting things online. At the moment, they are focused on con, uh, existing opera goers, but maybe over the next few weeks, we might find a way to kind of push that out to the to the broader the broader populace. Um, there are lots of other fun little things that you can find online. You might have seen last week Joyce Donato live streaming excerpts from Verter from her living room. So great to hear some of the Verter. Also great to see her living room. Um, <laughs> yeah. I would like more of that, please. I'd love to. Can we have tours of people's homes? That would be great. Um, and one of my favourite, very simple pastime is just to, to follow Carita Matilla on Twitter. Um, she is a, a truly wonderful and slightly bonkers lady. And if you're looking for a ray of sunshine. Um, just follow, follow Carita. She will she will provide it. Nicola, Laura, any kind of top tips for keeping keeping cheery, um, whether operatically or, or not, uh, <laughs> over these kind of uh, these testing times? I uh, I retweeted a wonderful thread um, yesterday or the day before by an academic, which but I think the advice applies to um, all freelance uh, creatives or intellectuals or whatever line of work you're doing, or indeed anybody who is now at home and having to deal with um, deal with their work suddenly being um, in a very different place in, in different ways than it than it was. Um, so the, the thread was really about um, taking this initial shock uh, in any way that you need to and not feeling like you, because there's lots of people out there now going, now step up and make use of this time and let's get, let's all come together and, um, and be really productive and and that's yeah and get get fit and write your novel and you know totally (laughs) and i had i read those and i thought you know actually i am a i'm someone who likes to be productive that's why i'm a freelancer that's i juggle lots of um projects in a portfolio all the time and actually all i wanted to do was curl up into a ball and and not speak to anybody um and uh, and then I had to get up and do a podcast interview. No, um, <laughs> so I, um, but this this thread was so useful about the the process of um, allowing yourself to 
to really take all of this in before you get to that point of going and now I'm ready to be proactive or I'm now ready to, to push myself towards the positive. Um, what's been really useful for me is is not guilting myself because goodness knows I do it enough as a, as a freelancer, especially when I'm working from home on writing projects of not doing enough or not accomplishing enough and actually allowing yourself to, to break down everything into smaller goals um, and so that those small things that you accomplish can feel really, really great, but you don't feel guilty by the end of the day of not having solved everything um, or suddenly got yourself a new job or suddenly having accomplished something new. Um, so for me, it's been it's been really helpful to do that, to be kinder to myself in a way that I, I sort of didn't know I was capable of um, and also to... I, what I've been doing and what I've been receiving is, is reaching out to um, other freelancer friends in the arts um, and checking in to see how they are and actually opening up a, a line of communication and support. And people that I didn't expect to, my lovely, lovely freelance hairdresser who I've been going to for the last eight years, who's a who's a dear friend in, in many ways, but, you know, we're not friend friends. She reached out to me on Instagram and asked how I was and said if there was anything that I needed to let her know and likewise I thought yes absolutely you're going through this awful time in the sort of beauty industry where clients aren't coming to you anymore and and she is a freelancer um and actually these these meaningful even if it's a little moment of are you okay let's talk has been really really wonderful well uh Nicola we we wish you all the best with your planning obviously for the sea we're going to keep everything crossed that September is you know where everything's going to be fine by then uh, we've got our Thank festival you. coming up 24th of August so as long as we're all allowed in the same room together, something something will happen. Um, now, obviously, over the next few weeks and months, OperaCast's schedule is going to have to change. We've had to cancel a few plans we had over the next few months. Um, this, of course, is the least of people's worries, um, but we're coming up with some ideas of some slightly different and more interactive content that we can put out during that time. Uh, any ideas, as ever, do get in touch. We're info at operacast.co.uk, Facebook at OperaCast, Twitter at OperaCast Pod. And that'll do for part one. Welcome back to part two. Now, a huge new story that's been buried by the coronavirus has been the conclusion of the investigation into Placido Domingo. LA Opera has released its report into Domingo's behaviour to 10 women in the company, finding that he'd engaged in inappropriate conduct with women between 1986 and 2019, and that they deemed the allegations to be credible. They noted he was often sincere in his denials, but they found some of them to be less credible or lacking in awareness. There was then a damning report by the American Guild of Musical Artists into Domingo's behaviour, which he apparently was prepared to pay $500,000 to keep quiet. Uh, Michael Cooper from the New York Times has done some great reporting on this. Uh, go onto our Twitter to see this story as it as it developed. Um, Domingo did apologise for his actions before two days later issuing a clarification on his apology, stating, I feel I have to issue another statement to correct the false impression generated by my apology um, in what was becoming quite an extraordinary farce. Um, he's since finally withdrawn from performances at Covent Garden, with the House releasing a supportive press release in return. Um, Nicola, I think we can finally leave this case behind us, which I know has been going on for nearly a, a year now. Do you think it's kind of made opera properly face up to some uncomfortable truths? Yes, I think so. I think for years there's been there's been the hashtag Me Too incidents, but there's also been the diva mentality of 
the director or the big star is the god and everyone must bow down to what they say and do and they can do no wrong. I think if this has helped us to stamp that out, then this is a good thing. I mean, what he's done or not done is horrendous and there are others out there. We all know stories. You know, I'll not mention them now. Um, But if this has just highlighted that it's all right for people to say this isn't okay, and people should be able to stand up and say this is not all right, I'm going to report this, leave me alone. Because there are countless people who've just ignored it or thought it was all right. Uh, And I know people in senior positions and companies have said, well, I had to go through that to get to where I am today. And I think that is so sad. And if if this is going to change that, then good. Yeah. I think the thing that really distressed me most about this was there was the number of comments online from audiences and, and quite high profile artists saying, you know, you know, why is he having to go through this? He's such a great singer. He's such a great artist. And as you said, Nicola, if we can finally knock one thing on the head from this whole thing, mm-hmm. is that that is, is not an excuse. Um, yes. As we said before, you know, it's different ways of different rules for different people. Um, and, and that sort of attitude, hopefully, is one that is, 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 is dying out. Um, yeah. Laura, during this, not, not just Domingo saga, but kind of the whole um, Me Too, this kind of whole atmosphere changing, have you seen companies make changes in the way they, they operate to kind of try and make the culture a more, um, a more supportive one, a more open and comfortable one um, over the past, say, 18 months or so? Yes, um, again, I like Nicola can probably um, would keep uh, names out of it, but um, companies that I've worked with, uh, even in in the the last few years, um, I experienced um, myself some harassment um, working as an assistant director on a production um, from quite a sort of major, um, not as major as Domingo, obviously, uh, but a, but a, you know a major international singer, and um, was a, felt able at the time to report it, but not necessarily to respond in a way that I would now. Um, empowered by uh, I think an industry and certainly that company has has they dealt with it very well at the time um, I don't think I did um, but since then they've also introduced um, really crucial um, outlines and introductions for all of their staff members both written and spoken um, coming into rehearsal rooms at the beginning of a process and, and saying outright this is our policy. Um, they've introduced those things, and I think other companies have as well. And it's about transparency and about saying we are here to listen. You will not be penalised for stepping out of line or for reporting someone who is of higher status or power than you, um, which I think is what sort of kept me from slapping this person in the face when they touched me um, yeah. on the bottom in the rehearsal room. Mm-hmm. Um, but. But I, I think I have certainly felt empowered within the industry over the last few years more and more to be able to report anything that might happen. Um, and it feels like there's, again, more transparency in reporting things um, and taking that information to the public. Uh, and to uh, So it's not this sort of behind doors whispering, oh, yes, I know that person's just like that kind of nonsense. Yeah. Um, which it has been. It's not that this stuff hasn't been known. It's just that it hasn't been made public or transparent. Exactly. And, and is this something that you um, kind of work with singers on at, at BYO, Nicola? Is there something kind of about 
the way in which you kind of behave in a room or the way in which you can kind of report concerns? Is, is it something you think young singers are, are kind of uh, aware of? So I started at BYO last summer in the middle of the rehearsal process. So a lot of the things that I want to bring in haven't come in yet. But what we have already is a code of conduct for our staff. And by staff, we mean anyone in a position of authority over anybody else. So we make sure that no everyone knows what is right and what is wrong so the way you talk to people um things you shouldn't shouldn't say and it's important to bring everyone onto the same page because a lot of our staff come into the industry from totally different parts of it and we are really unusual in that we have about 20 paid staff and about 80 young people who all come together uh, with totally different you know backgrounds um it's also I find now young people are far more willing to stand up and complain. So they are far re- more ready to say, this is not right, I'm not having this. Even than five, ten years ago when Laura and I were young people in opera. It's really clear you're that they are still both young change. people in opera. If that, <laughs> if that was the compliment <laughs> you're looking for, there you are. But we're not. The, the people who are 21, who do BYO, who they're the next generation and you know, we get them first. And if we can foster that great mentality of everyone is just as important as everyone else, there's no divas, you need the stage manager, the lighting technician, the makeup technician, just as much as you need the leading lady. They're all relevant. And if we can foster that beautiful, welcoming community at that stage, then, we'd, then you know, we're in a good place for the future. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they definitely speak up for themselves, this younger generation. Um, I can't promise that this will be the last time we talk about the the Domingo saga, as it's become known. Um, but certainly, we sound, we finally seem to be reaching some sort of conclusion. We can look forward again to a to a sunnier future. That's going to be the theme of today's pod: looking forward to sunnier climes. Um, and, and on to uh, a more cheery news story. Um, if you haven't caught up yet, we released two pods early this month, reporting directly from the Glyndebourne Opera Cup, which was won by the American baritone. Edward Nelson. Those episodes are available for free on our website and podcast feed, and joining Edward in the final of the competition was the British soprano Alexandra Lowe, who ended up finishing second. We spoke to Alexandra about her experience of the Glyndebourne Cup. Alexandra Lowe, thank you for joining us. First of all, second prize in this year's Glyndebourne Opera Cup. Congratulations. Um, if you can sum up, how would you kind of reflect on the whole experience now that we're a couple of weeks after the final? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, I mean, it's starting to sink in a little bit now. But I mean, the, at the time, um, you know, when you get through each round, you just, I just couldn't believe it, if I'm really honest. And, you know, I'd like call up my mum and tell her, oh my God, I got through. And, you know, she'd just be like, oh, it was all just really surreal. And really, everything was changing sort of in the moment. And yeah, just trying to keep up with all the emotions was, um, was well, it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> yeah, good fun. Now, I think one of the things I always find fascinating are people's repertoire choices. Um, you you yeah. gave us the the Hoffman and the Cozy in the semi final, uh, the Otello, the Faust and Don Giovanni in the final. Tell us a little bit about your yeah. your kind of thinking behind those choices. Were you kind of thinking strategically what you thought the judges might like to hear? Or how did you put the program together? Um, so my Mozart's I decided to do because I've done both roles. Um, they're both like stonking arias, aren't they? Like Comis Corio, you got everything there. And uh, Mitra D is again the same. I think they're both challenging, so they're good for competitions. You've got to sort of push yourself, haven't you? So 
that's how I went for those. Um, then my Elafui from Hoffman. Um, well, I mean, people love it or hate it. I mean, I got one of the judges say, I've never seen that in a competition because um, because it doesn't show enough. But I mean, for me, I mean, it's quite hard to sing. You know, it sustains going up to the A. and um, But it's also a really, like, nice tune. So, you know, I think it ticks a few boxes. Um, and then my Asisa Piedonsalice, my Rossini, is literally the only Rossini aria I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, that alone will do. And no one does it. It's quite rare. Um, uh, I have it, you know, I've recorded it for, like, my little YouTube thing. And I think it's stunning. It, I honestly just think it's the most beautiful piece of music. So I, I love singing it. Why not do it? And I learned the dual song especially for the competition. Okay. I needed something uh, that was obviously um, one of the composers that they were looking for. And it was its first outing, so it was a bit scary to do that but um but yes it was a bit of a fun one upbeat and you know a bit of light-heartedness really so just to balance things out a little bit yeah the audiences we talked to seem to really like the limited repertoire they found it a lot more interesting to kind of compare people doing similar things as, as a performer did you enjoy kind of being um quite strict as to what you could sing or would you have liked to have been able to show off a bit more uh well i mean I thought the the choices were quite broad, actually. So I thought there was loads, like enough uh, composers to choose from. So I think every every singer would definitely have had something that suited them. I mean, you know, if you were an early music specialist, it probably wasn't your vibe. But I think for most young singers, it's a great. It was a great selection, and um, yeah, I, I mean, it must have been great for the audience to have that variety. I think. Yeah, um, the the Atello was a particularly. Um interesting choice i thought to open the final not because of the song i mean you, you sung it you sung it beautifully but it has such a long introduction um yeah. to kind of sit on the stage for that amount of time i mean what was kind of going through your head opening the final whilst you're having to have what you know what seemed like an age of orchestral introduction kind of going on before you yeah. could come out with that first note well i mean actually we we had some discussions about cutting the intro mm. i mean and i could have chosen to do that they were really accommodating and stuff but I just think that intro, if, if you look at the story, and I just think it's such it's so beautiful with that lovely harp music, and it, it really is the gondolier sort of, I really imagine him sort of rowing through the, or whatever they do, through the canal or whatever. <laughs> and, and I don't know, when I went on to that, I, you know, you, do, you don't think about actually doing it when you make these choices. You don't think, oh, well, it's a whole minute and a half of intro. <laughs> you know, it sort of happens, and then you're like, why did I make this choice? But... Um, no, I mean, when I, I've got this, like, you know, internal dialogue that I've had to train myself to do. Um, so my thoughts were just, you know, stay in the moment. And I was picturing the gondolier and really trying to not let any um, nervous thoughts come into my mind. So my the words that I was saying to myself would be really positive and about you know just doing my best and enjoying the experience i mean it's pretty surreal to be on the stage with the london phil playing and the whole of the glyndebourne um opera house full of people i mean it's you know pretty cool yeah <laughs> um a number of singers we spoke to about cardiff singer last year said they had absolutely no idea what the judges were looking for do you think with the glyndebourne cup you you knew or you know now what you think the judges were looking for in the in the singers uh, I think I'm pretty sure most competitions are the same. Is I would say they're looking for an overall 
polished performer. I mean, you've just got to have a good balance of everything, haven't you? You've got to have your technique solid. You've got to, you know, um, communicate with the audience. You've got to be, you know, react really well with your either your accompanist or your conductor. Um, I think a variety in the program is always good. But I mean, in the moment, I think you just got to, you know, try and do your best and and trust that the work that you've done is going to shine through. Now, you mentioned there, so round one was with piano, round two was with, yeah. with orchestra. Um, do you kind of approach those those two things differently when you're singing with piano compared to orchestra? And what is that kind of difference in, in mindset in, in how you approach those, those two different ways of performing? Yeah, I mean, when you work with... I mean, I had lo- lovely Ashok, and he is just the most incredible pianist. So as soon as we went into our rehearsal the day before, he was just so on the ball. I did, We didn't even have to talk about tempos. He was just like... He just knew what he was doing. So I felt very secure with him. Um, and, yeah, I mean, obviously we're more used to performing with the piano, so it's quite comfortable. Um, you don't really have to worry so much. I mean, you mm. just sort of sing. You know that they're going to be there with you. It's a lot more of a close contact and stuff. So um, uh, that was fine. And once you get into the, with the orchestra, you... Um, you know, it's just a lot more pressure. We also sort of moved around the stage a little, or I did, I moved around the stage a little bit more. So I was just more in contact with him. And luckily I have done quite a lot of um, roles with orchestra. And so I knew, I, d- I wasn't scared of that. You know, I, I knew that I could trust my experience. And um, yeah, listen, you've got to listen a bit harder. You know, when you're so used to hearing what's coming out of the piano, it's it's easier. But when, when it changes completely, the texture is very different. So you've got to, really try and zone into things to try and not sing flat or you know <laughs> mess anything up but um again like Jordan D'Souza was incredible and um really really uh gentle and you know really with me so it was wonderful yeah so you're about to enter the Itapaka scheme at Covent Garden okay. why enter the Glyndebourne Cup when you're at kind of this this stage in your career when you've got kind of the the, the scheme coming up and you're on a kind of that trajectory you know why why enter a competition like this now um so i'm 28 and it was actually the first competition that i've entered it's like one of the big ones if you will um because you can i've entered a lot say at the royal northern college of music Mm -hmm. um but you know i hadn't entered anything for a while and i just thought why not hey just see what happens and um yeah, I'd like, you know, 28, I've got a few more years now to still enter some of the other ones in Europe. And, um, yeah, I guess this is just my, the first one I went for. There was no particular reason, I think. Uh, it just sort of came up on my app tracker and I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and why yeah. in general are competitions important to um, I think they are a great platform, you know. Um, they, they're just like, they get you out there on the CV. I mean, if you're going to really, I think if you're really going to make it at the moment, like, just to make you stand out, it's a really good thing to have on there, just to be in the final, you know, that's the, that was always the goal. Um, and obviously, something like the Glyndebourne Cup is especially great because of the TV mm. um, stuff. So, you know, like, it's sort of more international, maybe. People can see it all over the world. It sort of has that, you know, also for, like, the more general public to say that you've been on Sky Arts is quite, you know, people know what that is, so that was good. Um, but, yeah, I think they're just a really great stepping stone in any singer's career. And uh, But I think it's really important to do them when you're right, when you're ready, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I knew that 
before being 28, I mean, any time before that now, I probably wouldn't be ready to enter the big ones. Um, and, you know, every year I will just enter one of the one of the others and see how I get on. But we'll see. <laughs> Gazing into the, into, the, into the crystal ball, 10, 15 years time, what, what would you like to be doing? What type of things do you think that you and your voice will kind of lead you to do into the future? I think um, my, you know, my thing is going to be like the Strauss roles and Mozart roles, you know, those, all those things. I love singing Handel too. I mean, I love the challenge of getting my coloratura together and I think it's the most healthy um, way to keep the voice in shape. Um, you know, whenever I'm singing lots of coloratura, everything else seems a whole lot easier. <laughs> um, I love doing that and um, I really don't know. Some people say that my voice is going to grow um and actually the where where it's gone in the last sort of even two to three years it's been it's been a really big change so i've gone from that sort of very light mm. sort of youthful soprano and it's starting to become a little bit more rounded and you know just growing a little bit so who knows in i mean 10 to 15 years is a long time <laughs> <laughs> so i i actually have no idea i'm just going to take everything as it comes I'm, i trust the pros to like put uh, put me in the right place yes so. that's a, a healthy way of approaching it i think um, yes. <laughs> and final question I mean opera just as the world is, is is going through a tumultuous time at the moment I mean how, how have you kind of been affected by by what's going on in the in the world over the next few months yeah so I mean uh, I'm at the National Opera Studio at the moment and basically every, all of our projects have been cancelled in the near future so um, it's a bit sad because you know it was my final year of sort of studio training if you will um but I don't know, they're changing it. We're doing like a video project. Uh, we're doing like contemporary opera. We're having Aris and, and stuff written for us. So we're going to make it a video project instead. Um, and I think our teaching is all going to become sort of via Zoom, via Zoom or mm. via Skype or something. I'm not sure how that's going to work. Uh, I've never done it before. Um, but because the studio is so small, maybe we can do some coachings there. You know, it's not like a big institution. So it's all sort of up in the air at the moment. My, I didn't really have much summer work, um, but I did have uh, one concert in Andermatt in Switzerland. They've said that's still going ahead, so <laughs> uh, we'll have to just wait and see. Um, I'm just heartbroken for a lot of my colleagues who have, yeah. you know, some of the summer festivals, things like that. You know, I couldn't do those because I'm at this National Opera Studio. So, um, looks like my. <laughs> My summer's looking pretty chilled at the moment. But hey, look, I, I'm, luckily my boyfriend is a repetiteur and pianist and conductor. So we are self-isolating and learning lots of roles yes. and preparing for September. So yeah, he can, he can keep you kind of ready and raring to go for when the Opera House comes in yeah. in the exactly, autumn. Exactly, exactly. So, um, yes, so, uh, we're just trying to keep positive. I just worry for, like, the older people. They might they break my heart a little bit. But us singers will get through, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, congratulations again for the Glyndebourne Cup. Um, and all the best. We, we'd look forward to seeing you on stage at, at Covent Garden in, in, in not too long. So um, thank you for joining us thank and uh, all the best. Thank you so much. Take care and good luck with um, the podcast and everything. It's a great thing you're doing. Thank you. So, Nicola, obviously, BYU are in the game of developing young talent and what do you think the things are that BYO tries to instill in, in young singers what are the things that perhaps they miss from their conservatoire training I think one of the biggest things is the 
professional rehearsal process. So you're not going to college in the rooms you know, with the people you know, with the same stage managers, the same directors and conductors that you have all the time. This is a bunch of people, you might know one or two of them, you might know five or six, but there's a whole opera company gets formed of new people. So it's that being able to turn up on day one with your score, your pencil, your water bottle, ready to go with your shoes for movement and, you know, ready, set to go. A lot of singers, I think, still come out of college and think that they can be 10 minutes late and they could not have learned their music. And we don't we don't allow any of that. And that stage manager might be a third year undergraduate studying stage management. They will be standing at the door ready to tell you that you're late. And I think that wake up call is really important. And most singers are fabulous and ready to go and thrive in that environment of, oh, this is what it's going to be like. Fantastic. And then they make connections. And that's wonderful because then you start to see those beautiful artistic connections coming together and people going, oh, you do the thing that I need to make my dream a reality. So let's make a partnership. And you always get lovely little collective companies coming out at the end of BYO and they go, we're going to put this show on in like someone's front room or in a pub or in a garden or whatever. Laura, as a director, how much attention do you pay to, to competition? How, how much can you learn from someone coming on stage for three minutes about how they might be able to fill out a role for a, for a whole performance? I do keep an eye. Um, I've, I've not been lucky enough to go and attend um, any of the sort of major ones. Um, I'm more interested in seeing young uh, or emerging singers in performance in shows. Um, so for me, I know this feels like a big BYO plug, but honestly, one of the major things that I try and see every year is, is to go to BYO because those are the singers um, that are coming out now uh, and, are, and are starting their careers. I mean, th- those in the Glyndebourne Cup are a little further on, a bit more established, um, and are already in young artists' programmes, perhaps at the Royal Opera House or the equivalent um, internationally. Um and for me, uh, also at the stage of my career, I'm more likely to be working with those coming out of BYO and opera school, um, although that's beginning to change. But they're sort of similar ages to me or, or the generation below. So, um, yeah, I'm really sorry to say I kept up with the news, but it wasn't something that I um, necessarily take as a as as um, quality control or anything that I'm I'm looking out for really. <laughs> I think. Alexandra Lowe is BYO alumni as well. She is, yeah. <laughs> so I think what, what I do with the competitions is I notice those that, that I'm aware of and I, I'm interested to see how they do and I will I will often go and sort of single out if the if the if something's made available online um, or, or streamed live, I will make sure I go and watch that person that I've perhaps seen before or I've heard of to go, Oh, I wonder what they're like in this situation, but I don't watch it going Mm, here's my future cast for things. But then I'm at a certain <laughs> position. I'm not casting director. I'm not, you know, doing main stage Glyndebourne at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that is one of the difficulties about, about the Glyndebourne Cup. It's on, it's on Sky Arts, which is lovely, but that's a, it's a pretty small proportion of, of, of people who can access that. Yeah. What's fantastic, um, if you were actually to watch it, if you weren't put off by the lack of information in the title, <laughs> is... is the presentation, the, you know, the leaders are Daniel Denise and Chris Addison. And um, having had the joy of working with Chris um, on Glyndebourne's uh, Behind the Curtain, the most recent one uh, about La Traviata, um, uh, he's this wonderful go-between, um, say, on the scale between 
normal person on the street who's perhaps never engaged in opera and uh, and an opera bod, an opera, someone who knows about opera, um, because of his experience, he's he's performed in a couple of things um, as a, as an actor, um, for example, at the Royal Opera House, and he's also he he has a great love of opera. But what was so wonderful about him in Behind the Curtain and presenting that, and as I imagine um, him presenting the the Glyndebourne Cup, is that he's able to ask really fantastic questions that aren't dumbed down but are pitched beautifully so that if you don't have the the opera or classical music vocabulary necessarily at your fingertips mm-hmm. he's able to break that down in a way that isn't patronizing and is is he just asks brilliant questions and gets to the heart yeah, of um demystifying what opera is and can be um so i think they've, they've chosen really really beautifully there with him and i know that he um and Dunga get really along really well and she's a great spokesperson for opera as well so i think they, they're on to a winner there yeah. i love it it's like x factor it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> so, certainly chris was, was a great host um in the room he was fantastic and we we had a little interview with him on on the on the podcast and, and you're quite right you know he talked passionately about all the singers and why they were so great but it was in it was in such a fantastically um, relatable way, shall we say? You know, he's not one that likes to use. I think in opera we like to use all the the posh words we know um, to kind of show how clever we are. But it's not the greatest <laughs> way of of telling you know more casual people about what's what. Yeah, precisely what what's going on. Um, now, now Nicola, on, on our last pod, we we talked about the Arts Council's uh, recent ratings for how their funded organisations are, are kind of diversifying the artists uh, that they work with. Um, BYO were one of those companies that received a, a not met rating in your progress towards this. Um, now, obviously, you've been with the company for a relatively short period of time. Um, I mean, what do you think? How do you think BYO has, has kind of come short on this in the past? And, and what are you kind of looking to do going forwards to kind of respond to this um, this need to kind of create a more diverse representative sector? So, yes, I mean, as I said, I came into Post last summer and one of the first things I found is that we've been doing largely the same thing for about 25 years. It's a brilliant thing, brilliant model, but it needed a good look at it to just see what was good, what was bad, what we could bring up to date, what we could ditch, what we could add. And also we've we've identified, as everyone else has, that opera singing, there is only really one route in. You go to a conservatoire and you become an opera singer. It's a long, long journey, but there's no other way to do it, really. So it's about creating entry points to the industry that can make the widest group of people possible experience opera training. So we, if the conservatoires don't get it right, we will struggle to get it right, um, which is not uh, us blaming anybody else, but we are looking now at creating an entry-level programme. So we're working with some other opera organisations in the UK to create opportunities for people to get into, to try opera, to try singing, to try, maybe they've trained in something else. Maybe they love singing musicals. Maybe they're in a choir, anything really. Come along, have a go. If you like it, here's the signpost to do the next things. Um, We also recognise that training in opera can be seen as really elite. I think there's probably nothing more terrifying than 40 opera singers in a room together at a meet and greet. If you're one of three stage managers who are all younger than them because you're at drama school and you're like 20 or 21 and you're from a different part of the country or you haven't, you know, you're not white middle class, 
and they're all really loud and singing at each other and they all know each other and you're like god am i supposed to manage these people um so we do we've started doing separate training for our non-singing roles to you know bring everybody up to speed to the same level um and i've actually got a nine page diversive diversity strategy for BYO that I'm not going to read out now that's, <laughs> that's not going to help anyone is it but um it's really important to remember that that is the 1819 rating and that is now quite a long time in the past it's nearly a year in the past that rating so um one of the things I'm focusing on as well as a campaign called people like me so I want with BYO over the next five years I want to make people like me visible to other people so if you're it's simple things like in opera, it's already quite unusual to have an accent. So it's to, to champion those people who are a bit different and not at the expense of anybody else, but to make sure that everyone gets their voice heard. We've already started looking at how we can change our audition process. Um, we, we go around the country, we take we hold auditions at the all the conservatoires in Scotland, in Wales, uh, in the Royal Northern, uh, in Birmingham, and we hold auditions in London. We're looking at ways in which we can make sure that our, we'd love it to be free. We haven't worked out how to fund that yet, but we're on it. So that there is already no cost to do our training. We give everyone subsistence each week and we give accommodation to those who need it, who don't live in London. So if we can expand on that, then we are in a good place. But it's it's going to take more than us. It's going to take the whole sector to come together and do this, to look at the entry points, because at conservatoire level it's already too late we need to be looking at the 15 16 17 year olds who like singing or like being technical or like have an interest in directing and it's also about looking at those people who've trained in something else and then gone actually maybe theater is for me so short courses introductory courses things that are not i must commit to this for three years and get a degree before i can do anything yeah well i'm particularly pleased to hear the thing about accents obviously it's a big uh... A, a, a big a big deal for us here on Opera Cast, and we have all sorts of terrific northern accents represented. So I'm delighted to be having a northeast <laughs> on uh, yeah. on on here for the for the first time. Uh, well, I, on the last pod, I said I'd ask the question. So uh, thank you, Nicola, for for coming on and, and talking to us about that. It's it's uh, it's, it's very kind of you um, to to do no so. Um, and in vaguely competition related news to finish off this segment you may recall that last year we were rather taken with the soprano adriana gonzalez she was a finalist in cardiff singer of the world and then she won the operalia competition and um, she's recently released a debut album of songs by duso and Cavati, and it's brilliant um so if you're looking for some isolated listening i would heartily recommend adriana's debut album um, and you can find it online spotify all the usual places um, and that'll do for part two Welcome back to part three of this month's podcast. Um, now, sadly, the award ceremony has been postponed, but still a hearty congratulations to the opera nominees in this year's Olivier Awards. Best New Production, Berenice at the Royal Opera House, Billy Budd also at Covent Garden, Hansel and Gretel at Regent's Park and Noah's Flood at Stratford East. An Outstanding Achievement in Opera, the Yetta Parker Young Artist for Berenice, Death in Venice and Phaedra, the Children's Ensemble for Noah's Flood and Martin Brabins and James Henshaw for Mask of Orpheus at English National Opera. Laura, you can think about this for a minute if you want to. 
what what was your operatic highlight of the past 12 months um and i'm, I'm going to say you can't have something that you've worked on yourself um but what's uh what what stood out for you uh recently for being something particularly particularly memorable or enjoyable i tell you what it was last week and it was denise and katya by phil venables um I, my goodness, they got those two performances in London under the wire before <laughs> everything got cancelled. I'm so glad they did, and I'm so, so glad I got to see it um, their first night um, in the Purcell Room uh, at the South Bank Centre. I uh, I love um, Phil's work. Anyway, I directed his kids' opera for Mahogany Opera uh, a few years ago, which was a glorious uh, secretly, well, not so secretly, anti-Brexit uh, piece for Year Fives to perform. Um, and I, I, I really love uh, the way uh, he and and Ted Huffman uh, make work together. So for me, it was uh, as a writer and director to sit in the audience and see. For me, what opera, what opera could look like, what opera can look like. Uh, it was um, intellectual, emotional, full of layers and layers that I'm still processing. And actually, it's quite a nice distraction to process some of them in amidst the, the international crisis. I get to go into my brain and relive that performance from last week and think about all of the layers and the um, the sort of meta-theatrical and I suppose meta-operatical things that were happening. Um really really fantastic production all round so that will stay with me for a long time and inspire me i think in my future work nicola you know the question that's coming well i saw the angel esmeralda at Guildhall hmm. um on the opening night i was really lucky because they'd gone into lockdown by the next week and they missed their last performance it was fascinating because it was in the it was was it Traverse or was it in the round? Good question. Um, it, was, it was three sides, wasn't it? Yes, it was three sides. And the pit, so the stage in the Silk Street Theatre, you could sit on the stage and the pit was in, but only half in. So the musicians' heads were poking out. And then the middle of the auditorium was more of the playing area. And then there was in each corner another playing area. So the performers are really in amongst you. A bit like what Laura said, it was really fascinating to see what people can do with opera and that it doesn't need to be end on and I love a, a great big show with a huge set I mean I saw Otello at the Opera House just before Christmas and the set was phenomenal all that moves and flies I love all that but it was so fascinating to think what they did at Guildhall probably with not a very big budget and with two casts who are younger inexperienced performers leaping all over the place <laughs> on cars and you know trying not to take out a double bass player while jumping across the stage you know and that's great training and that's great fun for the audience I was engrossed the whole time just thinking where they're going to pop up next are they behind me are they around the corner where are they that's exciting mm. I was also there opening night of Angel Esmeralda I agree it was a very it was a very strong performance a great a great score um and again in, in my potentially isolated life I'm now inspired to go and read the novel it was it was based on um, so hopefully when, when Amazon hires a few more workers, that will arrive at my at my, at my door. Um, <laughs> I'm going to join, join the two of you. Actually, one of my highlights for the year perhaps came in the last couple of weeks. Um, I went to the cinema to see the Metropolitan Opera's Agrippina, um, Joyce DiDonato, Eston Davis, Matthew Rose. For me, big statement, but for me, that, that production was everything that modern opera kind of should be. I mean, tremendous singing tremendous artistry but not afraid to cut some corners with this with the score where it dramatically needed it a very fresh production very funny um 
all singing actors. Um, you know, again, the, the the singing was top quality, but but never did that kind of performance lapse. Uh, David McVicker directed. Um, it was just extraordinary. And I know I was in the cinema. I wasn't actually there in in the house itself, but it was just fantastic. And I I do hope that in whilst the Meta not putting on any performances, they might find a way to perhaps squeeze Agrippina online. Um, even if you know the terrible thing, I have to pay for it. I would <laughs> I would I would do that to kind of see it, to see it again. Let's hope that opera, yeah, uh, kicks off again in the not, not too distant future, and we can all be there talking about our favourite performances from 2020 and have a few more to uh, to choose from. Now, a few weeks ago, I met with the chief executive of Grange Park Opera, Waswi Kani. As you'll hear, coronavirus did come up briefly in the conversation, but we still seemed a long way away from Waswi having to cancel this year's festival, which sadly now has happened. You'll hear about plans for their 2020 season in the interview, and knowing Waswi's spirit and ingenuity, I'm sure that some of those plans we'll get to enjoy at some point in the future. So Waswi Kani, thank you for joining us for OperaCast. Pleasure. Let's start with the 2020 season. Um, the one that I'm particularly interested in is the uh, life and death of Alexander Litvinenko. Tell us a little bit about how that project came about. Well, this isn't the first world premiere that we've done. We did one in 2018, which when we actually had the second theatre of Moscow, the Novaya Theatre, we had their full orchestra, their full chorus and their principals and their set come for a world premiere in the new theatre in the woods. That was called, it was about Pushkin. And interestingly, having sort of taken that bit of risk, the piece has now become a bit of sort of standard rep in Russia, so that's great. And then while I was doing that, just before, somebody had come to me, the composer of Litvinenko had come to me with, in fact, a long time ago, the composer, Anthony Bolton, came to me with the idea, he told me he was put doing this opera, and then a couple of years later, he said that he'd been making progress, but he'd had a couple of hiccups, and I won't go into the detail, he asked me to solve some of his hiccups, which I solved. And then even later than that, he said, Wosfi, would you consider putting on this piece in your new opera house? And I said, well, the condition is that I think it's a good piece. So I listened to it, and the libretto is by Kit Hesketh Harvey. And he's a good composer. Um, he's come to, he, he was composing when he was very young. He's now about 70. Um, uh, and then in the last... 20 years he's been composing much more and he has lessons with Colin Matthews and Julian Anderson so he takes it very seriously and the opera's been workshopped at the National Opera Studio so it's a huge group of people who've brought this to fruition. Do you feel a sort of kinship because I know obviously that you started your career in sort of computers and computer science obviously Anthony Bolton was a quite he's a wealthy you know sort of he's an investment, like a, like he's an an investment, investment banker turn, then turning to music no but isn't it you know a career outside of music and then then turning well, into it you but know? weirdly when he went to cambridge he actually was mainly a musician and it was only you know he had to go and get a job and he ended up being like numbers and he had, he's an investment analyst he's not on numbers so what he does is he assesses risk and then invests accordingly we have a few people in our sort of orbit who are investment analysts. It's very interesting because, for example, coronavirus, they are assessing the risk in various companies around coronavirus. So that's what those guys do. They don't actually, they're making, they're advising you about, um, uh, they're advising you about investments, not you. They're, they're buying huge tranches of investments that having to take, having to present the risk you didn't ask for me really to talk about investment <laughs> analysis, but it's important that, that we all know more about everything. So, um, 
Yes, it's to be able to present the risk to his shareholders, as I say, this is why I bought five billion of that particular share. This is what happened to it, thumbs up. And if it doesn't go quite according to plan, he says, well, that was my thing. Anyway, so, um, the, so the question was, did I feel an affinity with Anthony Bolton? Yeah, as you're both known passion, for, known passionate musicians, but you, know, you turn he's to music a, he's, a very, he's a very clever man. I mean, I actually did music, I studied music at Oxford, and then I did, I carried on being a musician, I conducted and I played my violin all the way through my 20s, but then decided I wanted to do more music. So, um, but I found that all that computing and business stuff that I was doing in my 20s, I couldn't be doing my job now if I hadn't done it, because mm. you le really learn how to run a business. Mm. So, um, but going back to the life and death of Alexander Litvinenko, what happened was, he read, uh, a book called Death of a Dissident by Adam Goldfarb, which was actually written with Alexander Litvinenko's widow, Marina. And Tony Bolton read this book just thinking, it's just a book to read, and he was totally gripped by the story. It is an amazing story because it has all these key elements of opera. You know, there's a death in it, uh, a rather gruesome death. <laughs> Often a key there's, thing. Yes. There's sort of tragedy and there's betrayal because you have all kinds of Russian people betraying one another and you know and they flee um, he you know he fled to Britain and was given uh, asylum here so he thought it would make a great opera and he bought the rights to the opera version of that book and Marina the widow and Adam Goldfarb have been very cooperative and sort of helpful around it one tiny little aside so I only met Marina for the first time in the last um, oh, I don't know, in the last three months. And I wanted her to ideally give me some family photographs that I could use in my um, festival programme book, but also the Sunday Times wanted some. And she brought, she was so gorgeous, and she brought with her a whole shaft, to raft, I mean, of pictures, extraordinary pictures of, this is her husband, you know, looking like a strapping man. And we all know the picture of him in his green hospital robes, close to death. Very, very moving. Are there, are there more plans for the opera to have more performances? Because I know that in the festival it's, it's two. Is it already got a life outside or...? So there are, um, there are festivals and there are companies which only want to do world, you know, premieres, European premieres or whatever. So a few of those are interested. But I think we haven't really released any music yet. He's not a known composer. So we will be trying to sell it on. Yeah. Um, so we've got a couple of other premieres coming up, but we're not announcing them yet. So I think Livinenko's our second world premiere. Um, 23, we've got another one. 24, we've got another one. So I think, yeah, I think, you know, we're not just being, uh, you know, we're not just doing yeah. the so old I, I was going to ask, I mean, is the, whether this is going to be something that's going to be more part of Grange Park, and obviously it is, and I suppose why, why this kind of new focus on, on new work? What is it about new work that you think is important to what you want to do at Well, there, so particularly in the summer, there's a lot of opera on offer, mm. more than at any other time of the year. And lots of tiny companies have come up doing a Marriage of Figaro here, or a La Boheme, or a Traviata there. But what they're not, what very few people are doing are new, is, is new work. New work doesn't sell tickets the way um, Boheme sells tickets. Um, and, but I think it's worth us taking the risk. So I have to raise money for it. I think it's worth doing. I'm an old person. I'm 64. 
and uh, you know, if someone like me won't take the risk, who will? <laughs> One way of looking at it. Um, now, I'm interested in, in Grange Park because you don't work alongside uh, a designated artistic director like like most companies. I think you have various sort of artistic consultants and, and advisors. Yes. So, so, how does that process of programming and casting so, work at Grange Park? So, so the way in most opera companies is you have a kind of business manager. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the equivalent of Stuart Murphy at ENO, and then you have an artistic manager. But in fact, at ENO, they've got a third guy. Of course, they've got Martin Brabitz, yep. who knows a massive Music. amount about yep. opera, um, and, and Annalise is a new sort of artistic person. And of course, what happens in a company is that in an opera company is that the artistic people go, "I know, we should put on Benvenuto Cellini, <laughs> and I've got the perfect tenor, and it's only going to cost." an extra million. two million yes. pounds. And then the finance person says, can you guarantee it'll sell tickets, blah, blah, blah. And you end up in lockdown. Now the marvelous thing about having, I, I will only do my job if I'm allowed to have an artistic say. I've got perfectly good artistic credentials. You know, I can read scores. I have got perfectly good. So I'll only do my, my business job, which is called shoveling the, I'll only do that if I'm allowed to have a significant say in the artistic side because I can't see what's in it for me otherwise. I can, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at all the business side, but the only the bit I really like, of course, is that I'm doing it because I think culture is very important. So, but we share it out a bit because it's too much for any person. We have several key people. We work as a lovely group. My head of music, called Philip White, he, for example, appoints the whole of the chorus and has a lot of say in how we divide the chorus between different operas. And he also has, he entirely casts all the smaller roles. Yeah? So I don't have anything to do with it. I don't audition people. He has made a huge impact on the artistic values of the company. Um, so I'm very pleased with Philip. Then we have an artistic advisor who's called Ian Burnside, who's a trustee, and he's got a, you know, he's got an international life, seeing many, many singers abroad, and he's a sort of, of course, a singing specialist. So any major roles, I cast with him. So I don't cast it on my own. I don't have a head of casting, um, but we kind of cast it together. What else do we have? Oh, we have. Choosing the operas, I suppose, is the big one. I mean, Choosing the operas is the big one. So yeah. usually I will come up with... Actually, you know, the operas often drift in. This happens to most companies. So Glyndebourne will suddenly decide to change one opera. So my operas drift in. So I, can, I know my operas for 22, 23, or 21, 22, 23, but I have just changed one of the operas in 23. I was going to do a double bill of Cavalleria Rusticana and Gianni Schicchi, and I've changed it to a double bill of Daphne by Richard Strauss, not often done, and Gianni Schicchi. So I can't quite decide whether to, to do which one in the first half. What do you think? You tell me. Think, do, you know, do you know them both? Yeah, I, Gianni Schicchi is one of my favorite operas. Yes. I think it's a nice way to end an evening. See, the thing about Daphne is it's a very, we're in the woods and she turns into a tree. So when you walk out of my opera house, you're in the woods, which is pretty unique. So in a way, Daphne, and it's night time. I was going to say, it depends when the sun sets, I suppose, doesn't it? No, no, because we, we always finish around 10 o'clock. Okay. I don't know whether you've been out at 10 o'clock in the summer, but the sun has set. Oh, during, during the interval, you know, is, there, is that when no, the sun's setting? I mean, no, no, the sun sets, it's sun setting in the later. second half, yeah. So, yeah, the sun's setting at the end, yeah. It, dusk sort of falls, it depends when you start. So we try to finish at like 10 o'clock so you can be in bed by 11. 
that's the kind of decision I can make on my own. Well, I mean, unless you change the timing so that, you know, the, the sun is setting as the opera's, you know, maybe... You must run my company. You do it fresco. I saw there was recently, there was, there was a Meister singer in Germany and they did, you know, the first couple of acts at night and then everyone had to come back in the morning for the final... Oh, really? yeah, yeah, which I thought oh. was quite a fun idea. You can do that in a, where there's a small community, I think. And, and all when people they're are not, sort of shuttling back. And when they're not too busy. I've got a lot of very busy people in the audience. <laughs> Everyone needs to bring a sleeping bag and they can stay in the auditorium overnight and then wake up in the morning. That would be rather nice. It's a nice okay, idea. You know, 2024. It's a nice um, idea. But I think, because Daphne, because the last scene of Daphne is very dreamy, in a way I'd kind of like to send them home dreamy. Off in a dreamy sort of state. Yes. As long as they're on the train. Yes. Not, sort of not driving and yes. sort of a, whereas you know Johnny Skiki 50 minutes and it's very up and then you're very yes. upbeat for your yeah okay that's my th anyway so, so that my, all I'm talking about is that I um, changed some repertoire for 23 24 at the moment I've got one definitely booked in because I often book in pieces around a particular singer Right, yeah. so I will go to a singer who I think is amazing and go tell me what you want to do and, and then tell me which years you're available and sometimes we already have a production of it and we bring it in so 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 that, that those elements that I've just described they aren't really ego artistic ego a lot of it's quite practical mm. isn't it so that's the advantage of not having yeah. an artistic I mean, director it, it works if that chief exec and artistic director have the right set of have skills the right, yes but if yeah. they if they don't as you say it yeah well of course I don't nightmare. think yeah Yes, well, I hope people think I've got the right set of skills. Yeah. Do you have many conflicts within yourself? If you're, you know, money and... Well, your business head and your artistic well, are you quite... So, th theoretically, I can do anything as long as I can raise the money for it. And persuade the, the board about it. Yeah, so no, no <laughs> all I have to do to persuade the board is I go, blah, 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 I can raise X, blah, yes, blah, blah, blah. Or I'll go, I'm going to, in that year, there's 2022, we've got Joseph Calais in one opera, Bryn Terfel in another opera, Simon Keenlyside doing Otello, his first Iago, and they go, Oh, this is a bit ambitious. I said, you know, oddly, that's how we're setting ourselves apart. Yeah. So that's another way that we're setting ourselves apart from all the others. No one is really is putting these massive fake names on the stage. Well, that was one of my questions. I mean, Donato, Cleha, <laughs> Turfel, Keenly, Sight. I mean, you. I don't want to say punching above above your weight, but looking at peer companies around you, that's quite an astonishing roster. I mean, how how do you get those people to West Horsley? They like me. <laughs> they know me and they like me and I think I'm probably the only living opera chief executive who actually started their company. Am I? You tell me. Oh gosh. Well, I mean, I'm still around, but we've only been going five years, so I mean. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> on a on a yeah, uh, biggest on this probably. big scale. So you know, Glyndebourne, Garsington, Opera Holland Park was founded by someone else. Um, yeah. So, I'm the only living founder. So why, why did I? Why am I telling you that? Um, I'm telling you that because they kind of they think it, they think I'm so they think my God she's insane. She had to build <laughs> she life finished in Hampshire and she just built another opera house. They love it. They love it, and I treat everyone the same. And they see that the guy in the car park, Bryn Turfel, I treat them all the same. I don't I don't suck up to people. I don't try and be their friends. I don't want to be their friends. I just want everyone to work together. So I, I genuinely treat everyone the same. I believe we are all the same. We spoke to Sarah Hopwood last year and she described Opera's business model as terrible. Um, thinking about programming four years in advance, 
um, you know, uh, agreeing to costs that you have nowhere near raised the money for yet. Do you think Opera has a terrible business model? Well, different opera companies have different business models. I think the Glyndebourn, of course, we all, um, Glyndebourn is the big daddy of all country house opera. You know, they've created all of us. I personally have created Neville Holt Opera. I, the people down in Hampshire, they wouldn't have existed if I hadn't built that theatre and uh, done all that stuff. Uh, Garsington, I was... Uh, uh, ran it from 92 to 97 I built it up so I can I can claim I did a lot of the cloning but it's all about Glyndebourne now Glyndebourne because it's a full-time company they have huge um, pension issues they have a lot of salaried people so you have lots of pensions attached so what they're doing is very different from what I'm doing I have short my busy time of year when we're putting on our season it's a short season and so we have a relatively small number of salaried staff. So immediately, my finances are slightly uh, less stressful than Glyndebourne's. You can see that, yeah? I don't have as big a building. Building maintenance is a big issue, yeah? So then committing to things that you haven't got money for, I think we've got ourselves, every six months I have to do a month-by-month month cash flow of the next two years and then I do just a year-by-year year cash flow of the following two years and it mustn't show any ridiculous growth and can't it can't suddenly say that your ticket sales have gone up by 50% so you have to be presenting a credible future and so you have to have enough money now to tide you over into subsequent years and that's what I do so I think you know even though these guys are very expensive and you say I'm punching above my weight I your, your, your weight is how, how, what you're willing to do that is your weight if anyone can do this they can all do it if they want yeah. to but a they have to befriend them and they the people have to want to do it it's brilliant being close to London because Simon Keeney's side can go and sleep in his own bed <laughs> it so, is all over your website 23 miles from London it's on every page yeah, yeah. Well, because people don't realise how close it is. Yeah. Um, Sounds so, sort of, yes. Yeah, so Art. I kind of, I think I have a personal link with them. Yeah. And then, and it's, the reason it's brilliant for us is if you say to a bunch of members, come and have drinks with Bryn Turfel, it'll sell out in one hour. If you say, come and have drinks with... X. Yeah. We can name a name if you want to. But. I don't think I will. <laughs> um, it won't. So, and then also I can, I'm allowed to use Bryn's image. I'm allowed to use, yeah, that's a huge thing. And Joseph Collaire is singing uh, Boca Negra and Bohem at the Met and then coming straight to us. So I think it's a, it's a risk and it was a very ambitious, but I did it yeah. and it's paying off. Before we press record, you spoke about new things you're trying to do at Grange Park, always sort of trying to move with the times, you know, improve, do things differently. You have to change to stay the same, that's what I say. Oh, precisely. I mean, do you see ways in which, well, either you're doing things differently or, or Opera in general is, is doing things differently to sort of, you know, change business models to sort of move with, so, move with times, is there? So, it's a good question. So, going back to um, Sarah saying that Sarah's mainly a finance person. That's the difference between me and her. Um, she's running a much bigger financial operation than me. Um, I don't think it's a bad business model. I think it's a business model that has been predicated on the idea that demand exceeds supply. So 
the whole thing about going to Glyndebourne is you couldn't get a ticket. You can get a ticket now, right? Um, because there's so many now. There's so much of it that demand exceeding supply has um, has died a death. However, we have found that with our members' events, with Bryn or with Joseph, demand exceeds supply. So I go, great, I've grasped, I've caught that balloon again. It was drifting away and I've caught it. Um, I think the whole Country House Opera thing was about setting, taking out a big chunk of your life, so saying I'm going to set aside a day in effect to not look at my phone all day, and to spend quality time doing, ideally with people who are important to you, and um, and ending up with a feeling that you've done something exceptional. I think that's important. So that's the basic model. Now, a lot of people have been attacking the problem that it's not really a problem that. They, they all want to get a younger audience. I personally think opera only hits a lot of people a bit later on. A lot of it's about death, and only when you've experienced death and you've experienced the death of or, or betrayal, only when you've experienced these things, you know, when you're in your 40s or 50s, will the feelings of opera speak to you. Are, are you I know you're not in your 50s. <laughs> How Thank old you. are you? 30. I thought you were about 25, actually. I'll um, take that, thank you. Okay, so I'm more than twice as old as you. That's my feeling. You know, you, you're probably a slightly older spirit in oh, a young body. Definitely. Are you? <laughs> yes? yes? Yeah, okay, so I'm right about that. So this idea of everyone grabbing this young audience, I do it, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. And I don't think it means that if, if you don't manage to attract a shed load of young people, your opera company is going to die because people are going to get older and opera will, the opera will come to them. I think another element about change in opera is in the old days, when, for example, I was just sort of starting stuff in Garsington or starting stuff um, when I built the opera house down in Hampshire, you just needed to have one article in the Times. Everyone would know you're doing it. Now, media is so sort of fragmented that, you know, yesterday I had a piece in the Evening Standard, in the Guardian, in the thing, and people still don't know we're doing the opera, the life and death of Alexander Litvinenko. It's true, isn't it? So, so this idea of marketing, in a way it's much easier because I can send out an email to 30,000 people. That's easier. But they're being flooded by... So, you know, the image that you send is very important. I'm lucky I've got special marketing people. But we do look at the images together and we go, so for example, I'm, I've got a serious point to make about marketing. But for example, the other day we were sending out uh, an email quite broadly about La Gioconda. And we, want, we don't have any productions images because we haven't gone into rehearsal yet. And then there was a discussion with my head of marketing, Rebecca Thomas, about what the image should be. I said, oh, I said, just do something crazy. I said, let's have a picture of Venice and Joseph Calaire jumping out of the canal. <laughs> anyway, they were quite brilliant. They produced a little gif. I don't know whether you saw it. And it was a picture of Venice and then two black and white in, um, sort of oldie-worldie engraving women in their kind of boxes as if they're at the opera. Then a lion appears and then Joseph Claire comes out of the canal and that's a gift. So when you get your email, this little cartoon happens in front of you. Anyway, it was such a success that we did another one for Bohème where it's Paris 
and a cat appears in a bonnet. <laughs> and then we just did one for Meet Me in St. Louis where an ostrich appears okay, and right. someone drops an ice cream on them right. at the St. Louis World Fair in Lewis. Well, I, know, I keep saying in, yeah. uh, in 1904. Anyway, so I quite like being involved in that. And it's quite nice. Oh, I just said, let's have Joseph jumping out of a canal. And, you know, these very visual people in the office produce something. I said, this is completely brilliant. <laughs> um, but my serious point about marketing is that more than 10 years ago, I went to Tony Hall when he was running the Royal Opera House. And, in fact, I went with, accompanied by, the guy who's now the chairman of Glyndebourne, Hamish Forsyth, and we said to Tony Hall, we believed that opera needs to be marketed as a genre, rather than us being warring Tuscan hill towns. Because if I do well, Glyndebourne does well. If Glyndebourne does well, Opera Holland Park does well. People go, oh, I like that. I think I might try this. So I've thought for a while that that the genre of opera should be marketed collectively. I was very pleased when I noticed that the recent Royal Opera ad House ads on the London Underground were kind of more about feelings and a new experience. And I looked at it and it had the word opera and ballet and I thought, this is very nice marketing for me, thank you very much. <laughs> Well, cause I'm, I'm interested in that because I always assume that you sit there sort of looking at Garsington and looking at, dare I say, Grange and Glyndebourne and going, right, how can we beat them? You know, how can we get people to come to us and not, not to them? But you don't see them as competitors necessarily. I don't. I don't. I'm big mates with the Glyndebourne, with the Glyndebourne people. I'm mates with Gus. But do you have I, any just, you... I just asked Glyndebourne to publicise the work we do in prison and they did it. They sent it to all their members. Do you know if your audiences go to multiple they do, they festivals? Do. They do. They do. I think it's a bit, um, I want to do more with, I've discussed with Holland Park doing a very, very close link and I think that will all happen eventually. Um, with, the, with the Garsington people, we've often had some parallel, I don't say the word, but we have, but we solved them together. Yeah. <laughs> some, some parallel topics, yes. One of which took three years to solve, but we solved it. And I did that with their chief executive. So, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm all for sharing the love. Uh, I'm big mates with James Clutton of Holland Park. And as I said, you know, Gus comes down to our place. Hamish Forsyth, who's the chairman at Glyndebourne, he, I was the first person ever to give him a trusteeship. He's in contact with me, we're in contact all the time. We had dinner last week. So I don't see this as warring Tuscan hill towns. I think it should be marketed as a genre. In fact, I've got a very good idea, but I'm not going to tell you about it yet because okay. it might be announced later in the year. It's actually right. a brilliant idea. Okay. I'm not going to tell you. Well, we look forward to that. We will, yeah. Can we have another interview? We can and do. Then you, I'll can, tell you, you can come on, we'll do a little interview. And, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Is it gift related? No, 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 it's okay. to do with marketing. In fact, it was thought up by one of my trustees as a director here at Sarchi's, and it was thought well, that's up. That's the type of thinking you need, isn't it? It was, he thought it up. Very good man, David Kershaw. Yeah. Probably look forward to it. Um, and in fact, <laughs> sort of the whole thing about marketing, you know, trustees are very important. Mm. And we just recruited a new trustee called, um, you know, this guy, Gio Compario, who does Go Compare. All oh, right, yes. Uh, Win Evans. Evans yeah. So Win Evans. I, I used to teach him at the Guildhall. Really? <laughs> I'm about 20 years older than him. No, I'm not. I'm about 15 years older than him. 
I used to teach him at the Guildhall. He was incorrect. Well, in fact, Ian Burnside was really his teacher. And when Ian couldn't take the lesson of general music, I used to take it. And Wynne was like the most irritating person because he was always <laughs> telling jokes and people wanted to warm their hands in front of Wynne Evans instead of paying attention to me, that teacher. That was very annoying. Um, anyway, so Wynne did various roles with us, including being a banana in Love for Three Oranges. You it's didn't one know of my there favourite was a, operas. I love, uh, um, you know when the son is depressed right, okay. and he's got people doing different acts? Well, at one point, Wynne Evans comes on as a banana. So that was in The Love of the Three Oranges. Um, he did other things with us as well, and he's done roles at the Royal Opera House. This is and then one day, when he was in rehearsal with me, he said he wanted to be late for a rehearsal because he was going to go and do a, an audition for an ad, and that was Go Compare. And he gets a little bit of money every time it's played. So he's just become a trustee. He's got many, 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 many tens of thousands of followers. So that for us is very important. So whenever we put out a bit of video with Wynn Evans, uh, tagged Wynn Evans, tens yeah, of thousands of people watching. <laughs> yes. Oh, shall I tell you my greatest, greatest success story of recent times? Yes. Okay, this isn't, this isn't I, I'm very, I can do highbrow, but I do lowbrow as well. So this isn't, like, this isn't really lowbrow. So a lot of the ideas about Grange Park Opera come from the Italian man that I hang out with, who's always spotting, having good ideas. Like he named the Lavatorium Rotundum, he named the Theatre in the Woods. He actually found West Horsley Place on Twitter, because I never look at Twitter. So anyway, he's called Ivano Ruggiero. So he found, anyway, he found, somebody sent him a little video, or he saw a little video of animals singing opera in the woods. Oh, right. And he sent it to me. I sent it to my office and I said, can we have this branded? They went to the people who'd made it and said, can we have it branded? Um, just change the beginning and the end, because it's perfect for us, because there's animals in the wood and we're the theatre in the woods. And they did it for us. And we had it as our Christmas message. And it had nearly 90,000 views just on Twitter. That doesn't include Instagram and everything I did else. wonder how that came, came about. So it was something you found the content and then you just packaged it. We, we well, asked them, permission. we pay them. Yeah. We pay them, and yeah. then they... but it's not something you sort of produced in house because I thought you know it's quite classy. It was, well, it's yeah, quite it an was. undertaking. Something it's not it's something you just what do, do you overnight. Think? Did you like it? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. No one's doing that, are they? No, and, and it generated a lot of attention. Yes, yeah, positive attention. And so I'd, I'd email Joseph Calaire and I said, Joe, can you put this on your website and tweet it? And so he tweets it, and then I go. David Dimbleby, can you tweet this, please? So Stephen Fry came back straight away and said, yeah, I've retweeted it already. So, so I'm good like that. Not many chief executives do that. No. I get all my famous people. Well, as you say, it's that, as you said, you know, that longevity, those relationships. Yes. Just knowing to when to old. use them. You have to be old to have those relationships, <laughs> don't you? We have to keep them well as well, though, don't you? Yes. I mean, you know, it's, yes. it's a skill in itself. Yes. It goes with the fundraising, it goes with all those things. Yes. You know. Yes. Yes, all I have to do is, it's showbiz, all the time is showbiz, apart from when I'm at home reading a book. Actually, I love listening to Charles Dickens. I listen to Charles Dickens, but we won't talk about that. Now, let's talk about opera. Yeah. Do you, you, you don't ever get tired with it at the moments? When tired you think, with it? What's oh, with it? The whole, the whole opera show, you said you're, you're always showbiz. showbiz. Um, I think it's a privilege to do this job. I think it's a, I think it's a privilege. So my big statement about culture is I think anyone can participate in culture and I genuinely think it, you having all those feelings informs your humanity, it tells you, you more about what it is to be a human being. We're all going to die at the end and we need to know as much as possible 
about what everything that happens inside us means. What is the significance of all these feelings? And how do we apply them to make the world a better place? So, I know it sounds insane, but I'm old now, so that's, I just go, you know. <laughs> you can say these things. I can yeah. say these things. And I say to donors, I say, look, we're all going to die. It's only money. <laughs> so I raised £50,000 this morning. I laid out my problem. So I rang up a woman who has been very good to us already. I said, I've got this problem, blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, do you mind if I do that and that and that and that? And that? She said, no, no, you can do one. She said, do you want another 50000 I said, oh, that would be great. Thanks very much. <laughs> that solves that relationships it is that's a new relationship but they want to know that I think they see me and they see that I'm very hard-working mm. and I take every aspect of this business very seriously I think they go yeah I'm putting my money on her now I'll t this is a story about an investment analyst who um, has given us more than two million pounds and he read about the theatre in the woods and the proposal to build it in the Surrey Advertiser. And at that point, this was in January 2016, at that point, I, didn't, I was collecting money, but lots of people were reading about the project and asking for a meeting. I said, I'd have a meeting with anyone. I, don't, I never Google them. I just say, yeah, I'll have a meeting, rather like I'm having a meeting with you. But I had it in private, a private room, <laughs> rather than in a Versace's cafe. And I had a model of the new theatre, and I had a show and tell. The show and tell was very rough on purpose. It was an A3 sleeved book where I'd put pictures and I'd talk to the pictures. That's what a show and tell is. And you got towards the end and then there was a big cash flow to show that I could do money you and you had to add up. Yeah. Done it. And then the last page was this is how you can give. And I'd done this show and tell to so many people. So Michael Cowan arrived with his wife Hillary. Hillary was wearing a sparkly t-shirt. Michael didn't laugh at one of my jokes, not one of them. I had lots of witty things to say so about Bamba Gascoigne. Never laughed once, got to the end, got to the last page. And it said, he said, so if I give you, he said completely straight faced, he said, so if I give you 200,000 um, pounds, I'll get my name in a box. That won't mean anything to anyone. Uh, and his wife said, darling, if you give her 200,000 pounds, she'll put your biography in the box. Hilary Cowan's now a trustee, actually. So they're like chalk and cheese, the two of them. And um, so, and then he said, if I give you a million pounds, I get them my name in the vestibule. Where's the vestibule? So I got my model out and I showed him the vestibule again. And then, end of meeting. He said, I'll have to have another meeting with you when my, me and my wife have discussed it. They said they wanted another meeting. And I said, uh, can you tell me, is it going to be a finance-based build meeting? Because then I'll bring more finance stuff. Tell me. He said, no, no, you've shown me enough finance stuff and I've looked at your finances, you're fine. So he um, then at the second meeting, he started by saying he wanted to know how I felt the community would benefit. And, and I said, I'm genuinely interested in, thing, in broad social uh, impact of the arts. I said, I've been working in prisons for 30 years. And of course, as soon as you say that, they go, she obviously isn't. Yeah, you know, she's, it's she's not like two years she's been done a, done a project in prison. I had been, that said, been doing it for 25 years. He didn't know that. And I also have this project in primary schools. So that was good. We got through that. We got to the end of the second meeting. He said, well, I'll have to talk to my that then. That weekend, I sent him a two-line email saying, dear Michael and Hillary, I hope the vestibule is beckoning. <laughs> Waspy kiss. <laughs> And he sent me a long email back saying, well, there were lots of calls on our money and all that. They were, they'd given like five million to Churchill College, Cambridge. Got to the end. Anyway, then he asked for the next meeting. And I said, yeah, I'll turn up. So I turned up and uh, 
he gave me a piece of A4 paper and it was a pledge for a million pounds. It had five lines on it about when it would be paid out, the conditions and all the... It was, it was amazing. He then gave me another million later on. Now, that guy, why am I telling you this? So that guy's made all his own money. I never Googled him to check how rich he was. I still haven't Googled him, but I imagine he's got a it's bit of money. It's 101 in fundraising school, that. What? Prospect research, Google. I don't think you should, you see. See, this is, now, this is interesting, where you and I differ. Mm. I don't think you should. I think you should sit with someone and feel what they're feeling. And you can't if you've got those, that stuff in your brain. So here, while I'm looking at you, I'm hypnotising you. <laughs> I'm, I'm and terrified I'm, by what and you I, know, I'm not going to ask you for money. <laughs> I can kind of tell your whole... That's what I found a bit confusing about Michael Cowan, because he wouldn't laugh at my jokes, so I couldn't really get my mental hooks into him. But I, I was... So this is a real warning for, for potential donors, isn't it? No, you I know, say you're... I'm psychic. I say I'm psychic. <laughs> I just, and I always talk about money. I never talk about a donation. I just talk about money, and I just go, you know, it's only money. <laughs> Some guy just gave me 75,000 and I was being, I really had, I really wanted to give him a million. One <laughs> he'll, day. He'll do it. He'll do it. He'll do it. It's imminent. I'm laying the foundations. And when I said, look, this is what I really want you to do. And I showed him the big thing about what I wanted to do. And then next day he sent the thing offering me 75,000. I said, and I did say to him, I said, look, it's only money. We're all going to die. <laughs> I just go, yeah, it's true. It's you can't take it with you. No. So that's my top tips about fundraising. People are always contacting me saying, oh, can I have a cup of coffee with you so you can tell me about fundraising? I've got nothing to tell. Well, you've just laid out there. That's it's, my, you know, yeah, yes. I'm going to go uh, back in time to something you said in 2002, so a long time ago. But you said How old was I then? Uh, well, whatever 18 years ago is. Okay, so I was in my early 40s. You said one day I'd like to run something big like ENO. Is that an idea that ran away from you or is that still something that... Oh, does run away mean you failed? No, as in just one that you, 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 got, know, you, know, I you think, got tired of. I think between 2002 now and now, the difference in the amount of bureaucracy, you know, even just recently, you know, all the Me Too stuff, all the, you know, I won't go into details, but stuff that was happening in the early 2000s, if it happened now, I mean, I'd have to fire the people who were doing it. I would. You know, someone at Glyndebourne has just had their contract removed yes. for an inappropriate tweet. So the world in 2002 was very, very different from the world now. At one point, I did apply for a job at the Royal Opera House. and. Um, I won't say who, somebody said to me, oh, Wasfer, you don't want that job. You know, if you want to put on a concert in a broom cupboard, you have to have 17 meetings. I'm really not into meetings. I, I can see that this, yeah, that, that environment perhaps wouldn't be to your It's fine. Strengths. It's fine. <laughs> if I, I probably could do it if I wanted to put my mind to it, but I don't want to do it. No. Life's short. I'm going to die. I just, I, you know, that we're doing, I'm doing one big sort of deal at the moment. And... I just all the time I think these people are wasting precious minutes of my life because this could have been done. They're, I do feel these are precious minutes, though I might live another 30 years. And then what will I say about fundraising? I don't know. Well, <laughs> we, we thank you for giving over some time today with your precious minutes. It's very kind. Um, no, I'd rather talk to you than have a pointless meeting. It's not pointless. <laughs> this is very important. Yeah. 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 Um, thinking about, you, you mentioned that that sort of subsidised sector, it brings with it a lot of different 
things, you know, working for someone like Eno or, or the Royal Opera or, or whatnot, do you think there are things that if you did, if you were the new, you know, chief exec of Eno or the Royal Opera House, are the things that you would bring to that environment that you think that sector is, that part of the sector is missing? Unwittingly, I don't even try to do it consciously. You know, I do observe other companies and what they're doing, and inevitably, just without me even trying, in my head I'd go, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, I think they could do a bit more of that. And, you know, you talk, you know, I know a lot of people within each of these companies, and they all go, oh, I think we should do that. So it is inevitable that a lot of things come into my head, but I think none of them are worth publishing. <laughs> Not now. No, never, yeah. never. Okay. I, I, I think I should talk about things that I, knew, I solidly know about rather than silly things that have popped into my head when I couldn't sleep. <laughs> now, I don't want you to be late for your next appointment, so I'm going to... Um, I noticed you're crossing your fingers. Does that mean you're going to tell a lie? No, this is, my, this is one, of my, one of my tics. You're, 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 you know, you're sort of you're sussing me out. This is one of my things. Um, the final question we ask everybody is if there's one opera that you haven't had the opportunity to put on over the past 30 odd years that you'd really like to? Is there, is there one work in mind that you would just really love to, to do someday that you haven't had the chance to? That's a sound effect. Mm, I've got a long list of, you know, I've got no shortage of stuff that sort of sits there and I go, shall I take that one out? I'd like to do, I, I love Strauss. Right, um, I'd like to do more Wagner. Um, I'm, I'm just going into a Rimsky-Korsakov period. So, so I've got a load of that stuff up my sleeve, yeah. but I'm not going to say I've got to do it before I die. I think if I, if, I, if I feel the mood around the opera world in Grange Park Opera is right, I'd probably do it. And if some famous singer said to me, I'd love to do that Bernard Herrmann opera, I'd do it. If Bryn Terfel said to me he wanted to do it, that's a good idea, I must ask him. You just need to, you need to, you know, yeah. whisper the I, idea. Actually, it was very funny. Gonna... When, when Bryn first came to work with us, he, we got the date, but we hadn't got the piece, and we kept talking about different pieces. And then one day he said, I know exactly the piece I want to do. And it was Hindemith, a Hindemith opera, name a Hindemith opera. A uh, long Christmas Cardillac. dinner? Oh, Cardillac, right, yeah. And I said, I'm, I'm happy to do Cardillac with you, Bryn, as long as you buy 5,000 tickets, because <laughs> no one else is going <laughs> to... Anyway, we ended up doing Fiddler on the Roof. I was going to say, quite, quite the difference. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm also a big Minotti fan. What, what, what do you... Yes, it's, it's all th still in quite complicated copyright. So what, A Mile and the Night Visitors, what's the other one? There's like the console, the medium, yeah, Saint, I, Saint of Bleecker Street. I, I find the console very dark. Mm, mm. I, it's unremittingly I, I think bleak. it would be a good piece for ENO. The Saint of Bleecker Street, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how long it is. Two hours. Is it a whole opera? Yeah. OK, give me another. So you've got loads of ideas. You oh, need to help my, me. I've got, a, I've got a massive long list. I'll show you the list. Okay. This, uh, yeah. I'll keep you busy for another <laughs> 30 years. Excellent. <laughs> thank you very much. Oswikani, thank you very much for joining us. Now more than ever, we need our regular roundup of the opera that you can enjoy on radio, TV and online over the coming weeks. We say it every month, 
just go to the OperaVision website, operavision.eu. This month they've got a special Mozart festival going on, different performances from across the world. They've also got a full back catalogue, including Opera North's Turn of the Screw and La Cenerentola from Irish National Opera. If there's one opera I would pick to cheer us up in these times, Rossini's Cenerentola is the one. Um, just an absolutely joyous piece, joyous music. Um, and if you know the work, you'll know it's our theme tune to OperaCast. Um, so obviously already a, a favourite of mine. That's available on OperaVision. BarkTrack.com has a handy compilation of where you can find content online. And on BBC Radio 3, they've got a number of performances coming up, including Cosifan Tutti from the Met, uh, with one of our favourites, Gerald Finlay. Um, we also, of course, have our extensive back catalogue available for free online. Our website, operacast.co.uk, or just search OperaCast wherever you get your podcasts, including interviews with the likes of Gerald Finlay, Elizabeth Llewellyn, and Justin Kim. Now, Laura, I've tasked you with um, our hidden gem opera this month. If there's something that people should spend their time getting to know, what might it be? I have chosen uh, Frank Martin's Le Vin Herbe, which was strangely aired twice in 2017, um, I think as a sort of rediscovered uh, gem then, um, both by Welsh National Opera and also by the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, um, the latter of which I was lucky enough to see and just immediately fell in love with this extraordinary piece. So it is a retelling uh, of Tristan and Isolde uh, and was written, um, I understand, between 1938 and 1941. It's for only 12 singers uh, and eight instrumentalists uh, and it is a sort of dramatic oratorio which absolutely lends itself to being staged um, but extraordinary um, shifts in tonalities I mean it's very French um, very of the period uh, musically um, it's certainly influenced by by Wagner uh, and you hear some quotes um, very very uh, carefully chosen within within the piece um, but I know that Martin said he was um, also really really influenced by Bach so it's this it's a sort of extraordinary individual uh, sound with these with these um, 12 voices who step in and out of narration uh, and playing characters um, and this really beautiful intimate um, ensemble of, of instruments supporting them um, I think it's amazing dramatically amazing musically um, I think it's only I can't remember exactly but it's I mean it's not long so it's maybe an hour and a half I think without interval um, and anyone who would like to put it on I'm desperate to direct it <laughs> oh, that sounds like a call to Nicola uh, a, quite a direct how long did you say how many I think, minutes? I, I think about an hour and a half uh, an hour and 20 minutes <laughs> uh, 12 singers two casts yeah. that's, that's 24 you know double casts that's quite that's quite tempting sure perfect yeah. <laughs> well let's well, we're doing a double bill now so there we are uh let's have a listen to a little bit of martin's levar herbe And finally, as ever, we're going to end with our opera quiz. And this month, it's going to be Composer Birthdays. 
all of these composers were, all of these composers were born in the month of March. What I want you to do is tell me the year of their birth. Nearest wins a point. First to three points wins. I'd just like to rescind my comment that I have a music degree. <laughs> I don't have a music degree. I don't have English literature. I've, I've got a broad yeah. range of composers for you. Um, all of these people born in March. Um, Laura, if you'd like to go first. Sure. Known best for the Bartered Bride, in what year was Smetana born? I'll give I mean, you a clue who was born in March. I'm going to not. Google it. Um, no, because I can see you. We're on Skype. I know. Um, 1823. Not even close. Nicola, what do you reckon? 1820-ish, uh, I think. Um, Laura, an astonishing effort. He was born in 1824. You were just one year out. <laughs> <laughs> First point to Laura. We could record our faces. <laughs> I know. We should just audio describe our reactions. Yeah. Well, I am actually re recording this Skype call, so we could uh, we could put it out. Um, uh, uh, you're next up, Nicola. Um, right. Recently performed at Opera North Street Scene. What year was Kurt Vile born? Oh Christ. Um, eighteen ninety something. Pick a year. 1895. Laura. Oh, I was going to go for something similar. I'll go for 1893, since three is successful for me. Ah, <laughs> uh, sadly you went the wrong way. He was born in 1900, so that's one point to Nicola. Just the five years out. Hey, we're doing all right. Now, we know him best for Rural Britannia, but he was one of the most popular opera composers of his day. In what year, please, Laura, was Thomas Arn born? Uh, get the right century, Laura. No idea. Six, seventeen, no, uh, sixteen ninety-one. <laughs> Beautifully sung. Uh, In Nicola Thomas Arn. Um, seventeen thirty. Just gonna have to do my maths here. Uh, oh, uh, Laura, you're nineteen years out. Nicola, you're twenty years out. He was born in seventeen ten. <gasps> uh, so. That's Two points. You're incredibly close, both of you, on these. It's very impressive. Um, <laughs> Nicola, you need to sustain the game. The composer of, of many operas, most of which are now lost to us, sadly, uh, Vivaldi. What year was Vivaldi born? Oh, um, now. I said I didn't I'm going to say it's in the 1600s and something. 16. I've got this on a ruler. I could go and find the ruler. <laughs> um, 1680. 1680. Laura? Yeah. Mr. Vivaldi. 1673. Oh, good threes. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, three points. Okay. They've been good to you. That music degree has come in handy. He was born in 1678. Just the two oh. years out. It's two all going into the final round. Oh my word. This is so tense. Now, modest by name. Was he modest by nature? I don't know. It's Mazorgsky. Um, oh. Laura, 
your first, Modest Mazolski, uh, best known for Boris Godunov. What year, please, was he born? I actually have no idea. Uh, I don't even know the time. Pardon? He's a really tough one. I don't know much Mazowski, so I don't know even what sound world I'm tapping into to guess classical period or, like, musical period. Um, 1802! I think he's a bit later, because I think he's in the module I didn't do. Um, Uh. Helpful. Um, Nick didn't do any modules! (laughs) It's a very long time ago. Um, 1875. Oh. Now, let me just quickly do my maths. We're opposite ends, probably. (laughs) Squeezing it in by one year. He was born in 1839. So if my maths work it out right, Laura, you are 37 years out. Nicola, you are 36 years out. So Nicola... Gets the point, and uh, you have won. Um, that was a, a slightly sad end to proceedings. Quite far out there, but born right in the middle, eighteen thirty-nine. Um, but you just you just one year out, both of you from you know thirty-six years and thirty-seven years difference. Um, congratulations, very good work with it, with that quiz. Really stretched your musical knowledge from Vile down to Vivaldi. Well, we'll we'll get some more quizzes over the next few weeks so people can play along it long at home keep yourselves entertained um but congratulations nicola the music degree finally has paid <laughs> off it's been waiting for this moment i knew it would come in handy <laughs> um i'm going to thank you both very much for joining us thank you very much laura pleasure and thank you nicola for joining us it's my pleasure all the best to you both over the next few weeks and months and you know especially with that byo season coming up in september keeping everything crossed for everything going on uh, and you at home listeners Wash your hands, don't watch too much of the news, and keep listening to opera. And, of course, OperaCast. Thank you very much, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye.